This is Statistics Part 7, the final part. How can you tell if your data has a normal distribution? Well, all measures of central tendency are, this, are similar. So measures of central tendency, which sounds like a lot to me, really is just meaning the mode, the median, and the mean. So the ability of the data to tend to the center. So mode is the number one observed value. So six was observed the most over like three and two and eight and nine. Median is the middle value. So where 50% of the group is less than the median and 50% of the group is greater than the median. And the mean is the average. So normal distributed data have similar measures of central tendency. They all tend to have the same mean, median, and mode. What is the null hypothesis? We talked about this in part six. The null hypothesis states there is no difference between groups. And we're referencing means and proportions. So group A and group D could be differed not at all between one another. That's the null, the null hypothesis. And that's how you establish, you know, your alpha, your beta, your power um, is all in initiating a null hypothesis. So what's your alternative hypothesis if your null hypothesis states there is no difference between groups? Well, the alternative hypothesis is that there is a difference between groups. So in statistical language, do you, can you accept your null hypothesis? Yes. Can you reject your null hypothesis? No, you fail to accept your null hypothesis. That's sort of the funky language. Um, now how about regression analysis? What's that? Regression analysis. We talked about this with linear regression. Um, so regression analysis is quantifying a relationship between your, your independent variable and your dependent variable. So your independent variable is x the horizontal axis. An independent variable might be lung cancer or endometrial cancer. Your dependent variable is Y or the longitudinal axis, and that might be high fat diet. So regression analysis is trying to quantify the relationship between endometrial cancer and a high fat diet. And the endometrial cancer is your independent variable, and the high fat diet is your dependent variable. And the slope of that line determines the strength of the association between your dependent and independent variables, or x and y. So like I said, if it approximates, you know, if you start at zero and you go on that diagonal, you cut that graph in half completely um, at that diagonal line, then that's a perfect association.
Um, so just trying to describe a little bit more about Kaplan-Meyers, because <clears throat> some have been asked to, like shown a Kaplan-Meyer curve and asked to dissect it. Um, Kaplan-Meyer curve has an X and a Y axis and curves on it. The X axis <clears throat> is time, typically, <clears throat> and the Y axis is proportion of people alive. And you'll find ticks on each Kaplan-Meyer curve, right? And ticks on those curves represent an event, either death or censorship because of loss to follow-up or end-of-study period. And you can compare these curves with log rank in order to generate some statistical significance. So the Kaplan-Meyer itself isn't going to tell you that. <clears throat> but if you want to compare Kaplan-Meyer curves one to the other, you would use a log rank. And you can calculate 95% confidence intervals around that. So if you had a point estimate of, you know, two months difference at the, you know, 50% survival mark, and your confidence interval around that point estimate was, you know, negative two to 55, that wouldn't be very significant, right? Um, so you'd be trying to compare to say, is that difference I see there significant or not? And you do that with log rank. If you have a lot of variables that you want to assess with survival, then you're going to do that with Cox proportional hazard modeling and generate hazard ratios and hazard rates, which we covered in part six, I believe. So if you're just looking at univariate hazards modeling or univariate comparison, it's log rank. If it's multivariate comparison with lots of variables associated to survival, then Cox proportional hazards modeling. What kinds of things are going to increase sample size? So when you're looking at, you know, setting up a trial and you want to know how many patients you need to enroll. Well, things that increase your sample size would be if you have, um, large type one error or alpha or type two error like beta. If you have higher alpha and beta error, then you need more, you need more patients. You also would need more patients if you had um, greater variance, which is the square of the standard deviation. Um, you also need more patients if you want to detect a smaller difference. Because testing a small difference um, requires more, um, more and more patients to be able to detect, detect it with a higher degree of confidence. So likewise, if, you need a, if you're trying to figure out how to decrease your sample size, well, you can make your type 1 and type 2 errors smaller, set your alpha, set your beta smaller, um, smaller, standard, um, so smaller standard deviation or variance, um, or increase the difference of what you want to detect. So like GOG-157 had set up a difference of 50% and likely because they needed a smaller sample size to try and look at patients with early stage high-risk ovarian cancer. How do you calculate a sample size? So there are websites for this and in the excellence course we took, um, calculating sample size was much more of like go online, plug in values. Um, but per, you know, just sort of generally to converse about it, if you want to estimate 
um, a sample size or calculate one, you have to first set your alpha and your beta. So your type one, type two error have to be defined. And very commonly, alpha is set at 0.05 and beta is set at 20%. So if power is one minus beta, 100 minus 20, your power is 80%. So those are your conventional alpha betas. And then second, you wanna determine your formula based on your study type. So are you doing a cohort study? Are you doing a randomized trial? Um, you wanna figure out if there's a difference in the means or proportions, whether things are paired or unpaired, um, and then specify your expected variance. You also wanna determine what the smallest clinically relevant difference is going to be for you, and that will also help determine your sample size. A non, so let's talk about non-inferiority equivalence and superiority trials. So a superiority trial, the null hypothesis for a superiority trial, what is that? Okay, we covered that, right? So no difference exists between two interventions. And the alternative, right, a true difference exists between the two interventions. That's what a classic trial design looks like. So how about with a non-inferiority or equivalence trial? What would the null and the alternative hypothesis look like there? Okay, so trying it out the language. In a, in a non-inferiority or equivalence trial, the null hypothesis states the experimental treatment, bevacizumab, is inferior to the standard treatment, carbotaxol, by a pre-specified amount. This treatment's inferior by 10%. So if that's the null hypothesis in a non-inferiority trial, that experimental treatment's inferior to standard, then the alternative hypothesis would be, well, then the experimental treatment is inferior to the standard treatment, but by less than the pre-specified amount. And so when you see in these trials, they talk about a non-inferiority design preset to a hazard ratio of 1.2, which represents um, up to a 40% difference, then, okay, so in order to accept or reject the null, then you're saying, if I wanna say the alternative hypothesis is true, there's a pre-specified amount and the experimental treatment is inferior to the standard by less than that pre-specified amount. Non-inferiority design trials are one-sided tests and it's looking at a novel intervention and trying to figure out if it's not worse than a standard intervention. So like PORTEC2 was non-inferiority and it was looking to see if vaginal brachytherapy wasn't worse than pelvic RT, one-sided testing. The two interventions won't differ in one direction by more than a pre-specified and clinically not important amount. These two things are, aren't worse than each other and are within 10% of each other's um, efficacy. Equivalence design is two-sided. So we talked about the null and alternative hypotheses is being similar in non-inferiority and equivalence trials, but the design of equivalence trials are different in that they're two-sided, 
Non-inferiority is one-sided. So equivalence design is asking if a novel intervention like vaginal brachytherapy is not worse and not better than the standard of pelvic radiotherapy. And the two interventions can't differ in either direction by more than, the than a pre-specified and unimportant amount. And because it's detecting differences in both directions, the sample size has to be a whole lot bigger. So equivalence design probably has the, you know, can have the largest, potentially largest sample size. Um, similar, superiority design is also two-sided, and it's asking if some novel intervention is better or worse. So two-sided, it could go either way. And it's detecting differences in outcomes in two directions, and so the sample size has to be bigger. When would you want to use a non-inferiority one-tailed test design? When would that be a good idea? Well, non-inferiority design uses the one-sided tests and allots all your alpha to testing in one direction. Um, so I guess then I would use non-inferiority design if you're not worried you're going to miss the effect in the other direction. Um, so if you're doing a one-tailed test, you have to feel pretty comfortable that the other direction, um, you know, not better, not worse, you're not concerned that it could be worse. You're only concerned that um, it isn't better, if that makes sense. So two-sided tests, your half of your alpha is going in one direction and half is in the other. And one pro to that is there's less chance of missing an effect in either direction. But the downside is you need a larger sample size because you've got to put alpha in two directions. And in order to adequately power your trial, you're going to have to have more patients. Um, when would you, so more information, when would you uh, consider a non-inferiority design to a trial? Well, you need to have a well-established standard to use as your active control for non-inferiority design trials, like pelvic RT and endometrial cancer. And you have to have a lot of convincing evidence that your active control um, can be comp compare, was compared to a placebo. Um, so you know that it's effective. And it has to be consistently demonstrated. So not just one study, but multiple. And it has to be clear that that active control is effective in the application you've specified within the population you've specified in the study you're designing currently. The conditions of the trial can't favor one treatment over another. And you really have to not know if one treatment's better than the other. 